You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. In the book, To Alter Your World, Michael Frost and Christina Rice write about a little town named Manly. Now, in 2008, it was announced that this town, which was 30 minutes north of Sydney, Australia, had the highest incidence of alcohol-fueled violence in the whole state of New South Wales. The local police chief said Saturday nights in Manly were like a perpetual spring break, describing them as war zones. And to figure out why this was the case, you have to go back farther than 2008. Back in the 1800s, a man named Henry Gilbert Smith arrived in Manly, and after touring the area, he thought it would be a great source of attraction for colonists. And he began to construct hotels and entertainment, even building a ferry service that would take people from Sydney to Manly. So think the Las Vegas of the 19th century. Dance halls, parlors, water slides became the norm. And over time, the Gurungia people who had inhabited Manly had been wrecked by disease and the tribal lands were taken over and converted into entertainment precincts. And as problematic as its history had been, the town structures contributed to the problem too. In the 70s, the main streets had been converted into a pedestrian mall with bars lining the street and drunken teens and young adults spilled out of pubs into a crowded paved space almost intentionally built to start a fight. Now, the mayor declared it an absolute disaster and spent over a million dollars trying to address the cause, but nothing was working. So a local pastor decided that he wanted to try and combat the issue by throwing a Christian concert. His rationale was that when neighbors saw the Christian community having a grand old time, they would be attracted to that way of life. Now, of course, there were practical problems, but those aside, this proposal clearly didn't take the history of the city into account. They were trying to combat violent, drunken partying with nonviolent, sober partying. A noble attempt, perhaps, but a mere band-aid over cancer. And eventually, a small band of local church leaders convinced this pastor his intention was right, but his execution was off, so they tried something different. And they invited the mayor and the police chief and the chamber of commerce and local pub owners to explore all options. And surprise, surprise, none of them were interested in a Christian concert. But they were interested in a better neighborhood. And they convinced some of the pubs to change their business model, helping them see that violence was actually limiting their financial return. And they also tried a myriad of other things to quell the violence. But here's the interesting part. The most effective way they drove the violence down is they started an initiative where they recruited hundreds of locals to act as street pastors. These volunteers, essentially, would patrol the street in small groups from midnight until 4 a.m. with one mandate, and that was to listen, help, and care. They don't break up fights, they don't make arrests, they don't ask people to move on. Rather, they sit in the gutter and listen to the drunk teens crying because their boyfriend is dancing with another girl. They help drunken patrons walk to the taxi hub. They clean up vomit and pick up broken glass. They just listened and helped and cared. And within a year, the rate of alcohol-related violence dropped by 33%, and it has continued dropping for the last 
decade, God was birthing peace on the streets of Manly. God wanted to deliver love and grace and kindness where only darkness, evil, and drunkenness existed. Now, why do I tell that story? Because it feels so emblematic of how our thinking around church is changing and needs to change in 2021. For so long, we have rested on the ideals of being attractive enough and compelling enough to draw people in. We expect that if we have enough good worship and enough profound teaching and enough community and enough fill-in-the-blank, that people will just come. But to be honest, that should have never been the goal. The goal is not to get people into this building. The goal is to join God in the building of his kingdom. And the story has a punch to it because what was happening inside some of the churches in the city began to manifest itself outside on the streets of the city. The goal was not to attract the drunken parishioners to a cooler concert or sober party. Rather, the goal was to move toward the locals, to bend low into the places of shame and pain where they were able to listen and help and care. Why? Because that is what God has done for us. Come in the form of a Middle Eastern Galilean man and walk the dirt roads of Palestine, dining with the morally corrupt and bankrupt, the ones who would never be welcomed into the temple, the ones who are ashamed to show themselves in front of church-going people. That is who God came for. Two weeks ago, we talked through the vision for our community, what we want to see, what we long for and hope for and pray for, this spiritual and relational and cultural renewal by Jesus. And this week, I want to talk about the mission. How do we walk this out? What is our role? How do we join God in what he is doing in our community? And I want us to take the text of Jeremiah 29 and give some context and then think through some parallels together of Babylon in 600 BC to Knoxville in 2021 AD. So first, a little background For hundreds of years, the Israelites were warned countless times to turn away from the idols they worshipped. For centuries, the Israelites were beckoned by prophets to return to God, to open their hearts to Yahweh and not fall prey to the various cultural fascinations and gods that were competing for their affection. And ultimately, they refused. And so what we read in Jeremiah is what is commonly referred to as Babylonian captivity, meaning Babylon had captured the northern kingdom of Judah. King Nebuchadnezzar II was used as an agent of God's judgment against Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion against him. And Nebuchadnezzar would lead his armies against Judah, plundering Jerusalem, destroying the Jewish temple, capturing thousands of Jews, killing thousands more, and leaving the sacred city of Jerusalem in a pile of burning ash. And as the people are taken into captivity, Jeremiah pins the words that Caitlin just read. Babylon in the Old Testament is known as the Babylonian Empire. It was a kingdom in ancient Mesopotamia, one that ruled by force and coercion. And Nebuchadnezzar had erected for himself a statue, most likely of himself, or at least you know, some part of himself, in which he would force those under the power of his hand to bend their knee to him. And Jews who had been taken captive previously lived in a mono-religious society. 
meaning there was one God who was worshipped. Israel, as a nation, was its own sovereign kingdom, and therefore, if you were to see an idol of another god erected in the market or the town square or wherever you were, you would tear it down. But now, the Jews have been taken captive, they are living in a pluralistic society where there are many gods, and it will be a regular occurrence to see idols erected in the marketplace, where other gods are worshipped, where Jewish customs are not followed and cleanliness laws are not mandated. The whole point of conquest and the whole point of taking captive was so the Jews would begin to assimilate to the culture of Babylon and would stop resisting their military advances. They would quit pushing back and would become part of the Babylonian Empire. That was the point. Now, it is, of course, near impossible to make a one-to-one comparison of life in Babylon in 600 B.C. and life in America in 2021 A.D. But the spirit of what Jeremiah says to the Israelites is the same spirit of what Peter says to the churches of his day, where Rome is now Babylon, a world superpower. In fact, in 1 Peter 1.1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The word exile is the same word, the same concept that Jeremiah uses when he writes to the Israelites. And the theme of exilic living is a thread from this moment in Babylon throughout the entire rest of Scripture and even now. So the question, what does the lifestyle of Israel in the ancient Near East and the lifestyle of exiles in Asia in the first century have to teach us about how to live today now? Well, there are three obvious things I see in the text that I think are helpful, hopeful, and instructive. And the first is this. We commit to plant in the city we are sent to because transient disciples make little impact. Jeremiah's instructions start off with the exhortation to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The call of God's people was not to just hang out for a hot minute and wait for life to get back to normal. It was to plant generations into the city of Babylon. It was to invest their lives and their heart and their families and their children's children into the heart of a nation. This would have gone against the very fabric of how their lives had been going previously. And essentially, the command was to settle down. And truthfully, this is an extremely countercultural narrative to the one of my generation. Most of us want adventure. We want the next thing. We are content less unless we are seeking what might be out there. And whenever out there is realized, it's not enough. The next job is not enough, the house is not enough, the marriage is not enough, the kids are not enough, the life we always wanted isn't enough. To plant and uproot and plant and uproot is never to really plant and have no real foundational relationships in a local context. Transient disciples will make little impact. But the radical lifestyle of Jesus is to root yourself. 
Know your neighbors, invest in your city, engage in your community, be involved in your school, advocate for the vulnerable, befriend lost people, pray, know, and be known in a community by a community. John Tyson, who is a pastor in New York City, says in his book, Sacred Roots, what would the church look like if we chose to buy homes on the same streets and subdivisions, the same buildings and blocks, the same suburbs and sections? What would our love look like if it showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways? Meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scriptures studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practiced, resources given. What would it look like if we stopped attending community groups and became groups of community? What if our homes stopped being the places we hid from the world and became havens to which the world comes for healing? What do you think would happen if that happened in this church, in this community, at this time? What would happen if the Spirit broke out into our hearts and into our relationships? We would start taking massive risk. All of a sudden, people are going to wonder, who are these people and what are they doing? And I would just say, for starters, we are learning what it means to take Jesus seriously. And look, I'm not the answer, we're not the answer, you're not the answer. Our goal is not to fix people into right behavior. Our goal is not to clean people up. That's Jesus. He'll do that work. Our goal is to point them to him. And when we first moved into the community, I asked God this question. Are you working in this neighborhood? But as we began to have conversations and relationships built with our neighbors, and as doors were opening up at the middle school, and as people were opening up about their lives, the Lord began to stir something much more in me. What I realized was I was asking the wrong question. So the Spirit started stirring in me another question. Will I join God in what He is already doing in this neighborhood? Our vision is that we want to see a neighborhood renewed by Jesus, and we firmly believe that God is going to do that. We have confidence that God is righting the world, bringing beauty from ashes and order from chaos and wholeness from brokenness in every facet of life. But he is even right now inviting us into the process. God is invitation. He is beckoning us into deeper intimacy with him, to experience his love at a more profound level, to experience his grace at a deeper level, to experience his mercy at a more intimate level. This is not a go out there and do something great for God message. God is great. God is magnificent and holy and wonderful and mysterious and awe-inspiring and evokes worship and praise from his people. Rather, this is a lean into what God is doing around you message, which means listening to your neighbors and listening to the Spirit of God. What are the aches and pain points of their life? What are the places of darkness personally, relationally, collectively, in our city? And how might God be inviting us as a people sent out to join him? The first step is to root ourselves in a specific place 
for a significant period of time. It's the only way we're going to make any dent and any significance in our neighborhood. Number two, we commit to the radical way of Jesus because assimilating disciples look no different than our city and withdrawn disciples will make no difference. Rosaria Butterfield, in her seminal work, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, says this, Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. This is the Jesus paradox. The power of a witness has no impact if our lives just mirror our neighbors with a little religion thrown on top. We have to begin to dig deeper roots into our transformative faith than mere niceties and politeness. One of the great tragedies is that we have convinced ourselves that we can be saved by Jesus without being radically changed by him. We can believe right doctrine in our head. We can even act nice, do sweet things without being radically transformed. Some of the nicest, most polite, most sincere people I know don't give a lick about the Bible. Following Jesus is not a set of beliefs, and it's not mere kindness. It is a lifetime of lifestyle. Certainly included in the lifestyle are fundamental beliefs about who God is and who we are. We can't get around that. There are absolute truths that we must hold to and believe. But we must believe them. And by believe them, I mean embody them. Do we believe that God is our Father? What a countercultural thought. Do we believe possessions are of ultimate value? Does what we do with our money and our stuff look any different than how the world treats their money and stuff? What about our identity politics? Do we scream and shout and fuss and argue at every opportunity we get to just obliterate someone? Does our politics fit nicely into the category of the elephant or the donkey? Or do we embody a different politic altogether because we worship a different king altogether? What about how we interact with other people? Jesus is the best listener. What if we became known for our attentiveness because we have nothing to prove to one another or our neighbor? What about a whole life moral ethic that has a different vision for the Imago Dei, the image of God? One that cares about people on the margins and one that cares about a sexual ethic that aligns with God's vision for sexuality? One that cares for both the unborn and the immigrant, the disabled and the elderly. What if we carved out our schedules for silence and solitude that was intentionally meant to listen to the Spirit of God speaking through His Word? What if we actually believed that the Scriptures were transformative enough for our mind, body, and soul so much that we committed to put them to memory? What if we raised our children with visions of what it means to be a man or woman made in the image of God with full dignity and personhood and yet not the center of the universe? Or what if we modeled a love for justice that was accompanied with a love for enemy? Most of us have a longing for victims to have justice served for them, but what about for perpetrators of injustice to experience the mercy and forgiveness of God? The radical lifestyle of Jesus is that it is unlike anything else our world offers. It is unlike anything else our city offers. 
A radical lifestyle of Jesus neither assimilates to the culture nor withdraws from it. It is popular right now to wage war against the culture, to feel like it's moving in a, quote, godless direction. But let's not fool ourselves. Since the dawn of time, nations have been idolatrous and volatile to Christianity. Our job is not to wage war against people who believe differently than we do. It is actually to do the opposite, to serve and love and care and invest in them. The enemy of a Jesus follower has a name, and he has a fate. His name, commonly referred to as Satan, is the evil one, and his whole purpose is to get you to shift from fighting against him to fighting your neighbor who has different opinions about how things like the government should operate. If he can get people who follow Jesus to eat the culture alive instead of seeking to lay down their lives for the eternal joy of their neighbor, then he is doing what he set out to do, to steal our joy and kill our love and destroy our witness. And while we don't assimilate to the culture, we also don't attack it. Instead, transformed, redeemed followers of Jesus neither find their permanent and eternal confidence here, nor do they hate those who live here. Rather, they live in such a way that they believe there is a coming city, a new Jerusalem, where equity and peace and eternal joy and gladness in God is the overwhelming expression, and glory and honor and praise is the overwhelming result. That is a strange way to live. This week, there was an article in Time Magazine that interviewed Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and asked about Christianity in America. This is what he says. I think the problem with Christianity in America is not that we are too strange, but that we are not strange enough. We should be countercultural in loving God and loving our neighbors in ways that ought not to make sense except for the grace of God. I think that's it. Not strange enough. Nations rage and cultures war and fight and bicker and slander, but followers of Jesus serve, invest, love, and care. People assimilate and acclimate and fall in line with ideologies and cultural norms and gods of cities, but followers of Jesus keep their wits about them and root themselves deep into the countercultural lifestyle of Jesus, convictional on truth and lavish on grace. Number three. We commit ourselves to self-sacrificing love and mission because we believe God made the citizens of our city in his image and he has sent us to them. Now, in verse 1 of Jeremiah 29, it says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it appears that Nebuchadnezzar was the one who brought the people from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's the first level. But in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it appears that it was God who sent them there. So on the surface, it is the worldly domination of the Babylonian Empire, 
But on a deeper level, it is the sovereign God orchestrating the events of his people. God is a sending God. He sent Adam and Eve into the garden. Then he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. He sent Abraham to an unknown land. He sent the Israelites out of Egypt. He sent the Israelites into Babylon. He sends himself, Jesus, to walk among us and then sends him to the cross and then sends his spirit into our hearts and then sends us into the world. God is a sending God and he sends out of love. The most astonishing part of Jeremiah's letter is this small line, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Israel's place of worship has been destroyed. Their lifestyle has been changed. Their freedom has been taken away. They are no longer in charge. They are the ones suffering. They have no power and no say. And yet, the call of God was to serve the enemy of God. Babylon was no friend of God. Babylon's king worshipped himself along with many other gods. So there should be no reason God's instructions to his people would be to bless the empire, the one that just destroyed the very place where God resided in the temple. Unless, of course, God is not like us. This isn't something we would do. In fact, whenever we feel threatened, whenever we sense power and control leaving our hands, whenever we feel our social capital getting ripped away, we fight back. That's what humans have always done. The first recorded sinful act after the fall is the murder of one brother Abel by another Cain. So how interesting and absurd is it that the encouragement God gives to the Israelites once they have everything taken from them is not to fight to gain it back, but it's to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. The welfare, the betterment, the improvement of... The countercultural call of God is to bless the world that has turned its back on him. The counterintuitive way of the kingdom is to bless the empire that is against God, which you know now means a hundred things. It can mean things such as investing in the schools in our neighborhood, advocating for the edges of the community, raising up children in a way that compels them to bless their city. It means what it says: seek the benefit, the flourishing the good of the place you live, and not only to seek the welfare of the city, but to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The invitation of God is to bring our city before him and plead with him to move. A transformed disciple cares about its city. A transformed disciple prays for its city. A transformed disciple longs to see the real Jesus made much of and the counterfeit Jesus put down. Think of the Israelites captured and plundered and the call is to serve the Babylonian empire, to pray for the Babylonian empire, the one that is against you. Doesn't this sound familiar to the command of Jesus in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Nothing I have found will turn our hearts softer and make us more aware of our own arrogance and grow our heart in deeper affection for someone else and to bring them to God in prayer. 
And through prayer, God is inviting us into his great rescue mission. It's the longest, sweetest, most subversive mission the world has ever seen. It's the mission of the loving father pursuing his prodigal son. The mission that God is restoring the world and putting it back together by giving up his life. That's why it's so difficult to believe. The mission of God is love. And the mystery of God is that he would love us. And the mercy of God is that he would invite us into that mission of self-sacrificing love with a tender invite. Come, follow me. See, we are first recipients of his grace, and then we are partakers of his grace. First, we receive the love of God, and then we embody the love of God. And it's not just knowing intellectually that God loves us. It's believing it in the secret parts of our heart, and then it's living it out into the dark corners of our community. James 1, 24 and 25 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The opposite of forgetting is not remembering. The opposite of forgetting is doing. It's not that we just need to remember what Jesus has said. It's that we need to do it. You don't get better at playing the piano by studying the charts alone. You get better at playing the piano by playing the piano. You get more skilled at playing basketball, not by studying form or watching reels of Michael Jordan. You get more skilled by standing at the free throw line and shooting 100 shots every day. You don't become a master artist by only looking at Picasso, but by taking brush to canvas over and over again. And so it is with our discipleship to Jesus. We don't love Jesus more by merely looking at what he did and saying, wow, that is impressive. We love Jesus more by answering the invitation that says, come, follow me. And as we embody the love of God, as we become the hands and feet of a crucified Savior, we begin to show the world that the church is an active, living organism, an expression of the very body of Jesus himself. See, the success of the church in the late 1900s, the boom of the megachurch, and everyone seemingly going to church somewhere, has greatly turned the church inward which is the antithesis of God, who is constantly turning outward toward us, we now get the chance to embody such radical love. And here's the reality. We, the church, are not an organization. I mean, according to the government right now, at least, we may have 501c3 nonprofit status, but we are not primarily an organization. We are also not a corporation. We are not looking to grow bigger and bigger and bigger because we want to outlast our competition. We don't have competition. We have an enemy that manifests himself in a thousand different ways. But other churches are not our enemy. They are not our competition. In fact, whenever we can champion their causes and partner with them for kingdom advancement, we will. We're not battling them for market share. 
And we are also not a weekly event. Church is not a one day a week affair. We don't gather together on Sunday for spiritual nourishment and then go live our secular lives the other six days a week. We are the living, breathing body of God himself. We sense the presence of God through prayer and silence and fasting and scripture intake and fellowship with one another. Therefore, we are constantly being pushed out further into our city to lost people, to marginalized people, to forgotten people. We are constantly in process. We are constantly battling with the fact that we know the risen king and we are riddled with besetting sins. We are growing in our knowledge of God, which means we are growing in our knowledge of how much we are not like God. We are sent out to be emptied and we come back to Jesus and to one another to be filled, to go back out to empty ourselves. It is a constant cycle. It is the abundant life and it is with great joy that we are called to it. So for the rest of the semester, we are going to walk through what forms us as a church. What what marks us? What are the ways in which in our time, in our place, in our bodies, can we reflect the person of Jesus? What are we committed to that over time will form us and shape us to be a people of conviction and compassion, of justice and mercy, of word and spirit, of grace and truth, of vulnerability and security? We do not work our way up to God. God has worked his way down to us. So how then shall we live? It was God who was commissioned to us and has now commissioned us out. We join with God in seeking first his kingdom. Our vision is to see this neighborhood renewed by Jesus. That's what we're praying for. That's what we want to see happen. And our mission is to be a family sent out by Jesus His Spirit is sending us out to live as exiles, as people who do not call this place home, but are eternally secure in another home. And so we can live freely, not bound by the chains and gods that beckon for the attention of our city, but rather to remind our city that there is another one coming, ruled by a generous monarch who is king over all. So that's our vision, that's our mission And our formation is to be a people reflecting Jesus. And our formation is built on four identity pillars. And the first one is this, we are the children of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, because of this identity as children of God, we are committed to be formed by scripture and and prayer. We believe scripture has the greatest capacity to form us into people who are filled with grace and truth. And we are also committed to be formed by prayer, believing that God actually bends his ear down to listen to our prayers. And we actually lift our heads up to hear from God himself. And because of this identity, we are committed to one another. Maybe the greatest flaw of Western thinking is the disease of individualitis. We are committed to being formed by the Spirit of God through one another. There is no privatized Christianity. There is only discipleship to Jesus fleshed out in relationship. The second identity is we are servants of King Jesus. Because of this, we are committed to generosity and hospitality. We are formed by the generosity of Jesus and now seek to become people who give away our money and open up our wallets. And we're also committed to throw open the welcome mat of our homes and give our time and our heart and our energy away to our neighbors. 
And because of this identity, we are committed to the least of these, the margins of our community, the poor. God cares deeply about the most vulnerable among us. If we choose to turn a blind eye to the poor in our city, we are turning a blind eye to God himself. Not only are we willing to invest our lives into the poor, we will be formed by our investment into them by them. Third is that we are missionaries to our city. And because of this, we are committed to lost people. We care about people far from God because God cares about them. God came to live among lost people. We are called to do the same thing. And because of this, we are committed to all people being all in, meaning there is no JV and varsity Christians. Each one is equipped by the same spirit with the same gospel toward the same mission to the same God. And we want to cultivate the creativity of the spirit as we seek the kingdom together, all of us being all in for the kingdom being found in Knoxville. And lastly, we are citizens of another kingdom. And because of this identity, we are committed to an expression of a multicultural kingdom. The kingdom of heaven will be a mosaic of all people. Now, we will not represent that in this little church, but we do seek greater diversity and a greater expression of the world in our tiny little corner of earth. And because of this, we are committed to biblical justice. We believe in a just God, and therefore we are committed to being formed by His justice, racial and socioeconomic equity inside our church and on the streets of our city. And these four identity pillars and eight values will mark us as people who are committed to another way. We are Jesus' alternative to the world, and these pillars will ground us and shape us, and by God's grace, with God's peace, for God's glory, and to God's world. Let's commit to be people who are sent out and formed by the person and work of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.